So we're thrilled that you're here today. Um, hope that you have, were blessed by the worship. Uh, great time together <clears throat> uh, around some good songs. Psalm 18 <clears throat> is one that is the testimony of David literally when he was running from Saul. And Scott led that this morning. Um, Bernie sang Deep Cries Out. That's from Psalm 42. That's another psalm of David talking about uh, literally his spirit crying out to connect with the depths of God. Um, the, it, literally it says deep cries out to deep and at the noise of thy waterfalls. It's talking about being washed over. It's literally being pounded by the wave of God's love and mercy. Um, so we're, we're singing directly from the words of David today in our, in our hymns, our psalms, our spiritual songs. Uh, Aaron sang Ever Be, which is directly from Psalm 34. David said, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be, ever be in my mouth. That's where that comes from. Um, Today, this is number seven in the Poet Warrior King series. Last Sunday, uh, we said all caves aren't the same. We talked about the difference between a dullum and the stronghold of En Gedi. And I ask you, which one of those would you rather have on your resume? You live at a dullum or you live in the stronghold of En Gedi? <clears throat> so this morning, we are excited to be able to move on in this. David is still a fugitive. He is still running from Saul. The interesting lesson last week was the opportunity put right into David's hands to end the madness and to kill the crazy king that was after him out of a sure, nothing but a pure fit of jealousy because David was the anointed of the Lord now, Saul used to be. And used to be anointed is not something that is good for a king of Israel. And so he is um, obviously trying to protect himself, cover his... Um, assets, so to speak, and the future of uh, the destiny or the dynasty of his children. And so he's trying to kill David. He has an interesting experience in the back of that cave when David comes out and holds up a piece of Saul's robe. All of the men had spoken to David, unified. It wasn't a mere consensus, but it was a complete 100% unified voice saying, this is the moment the Lord put his, has put him into your hands. Why don't you wipe him out? Let's get rid of it. You're going to be king anyway. David sneaked over and cut off a corner of Saul's robe and when he did, his heart smote him because he knew that he was this close to actually taking his life and taking life and giving life is only in the hand of the Lord. That's not something that we are to do uh, on our own. That's, that belongs to God himself and so David realized that and his heart smote him and this is a beautiful picture of anyone who, is, who has a current uh, active relationship with the Lord. When God sort of, you know, kind of kind of gives you the shush or says, no, hang on just a second, don't do that. that. That's not the best for you. That's not a direction that you ought to head off into. And so David senses the convicting presence of the Lord on his life and he backs up and he argues with his own men back in the backside of the cave saying, no, 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 no. He persuaded the men with these words saying, I will not let you attack the king. And you know what happened, King Saul, it was revealed to him that David had the opportunity to kill him and David didn't do it. And Saul wept. He was moved in his emotions, but he wasn't changed in his will. Because just a chapter later, Saul is going to be on the hunt, on the run again. He acts like he's going to do right by David. David swears in that moment and David will hold up his word that he will not wipe Saul's offspring off the face of the earth and he will be good to them but Saul doesn't keep his word. The end of the chapter, interestingly, it says Saul went back home. David and his men went back up to the stronghold of En Gedi. So that's a little bit of review. We open up this morning with chapter 25, and Samuel has died. 
And so the grief that comes, a number of these things we've already spoken to in a general sense because they are all part of the experience of what we refer to as the fugitive years. David's cave experience, running in and out of the network of caves at Adullam, into the wilderness of Ziph, over to the forest of Horesh, back up to En Gedi. Now he's heading over to the wilderness of Paran. So he's on the run. He's changing his place. He's looking for a safe house. If you're interested in any of those kind of current terror spy movies, all of that kind of stuff that you see on TV, David certainly is looking for a safe house, and he's found out that only God is the safe place. And so this morning, I want you, if you would please, I know you've gotten comfortable, but stand up with me. Let's read our text one time. This is God's choosing. The title of the message today is called, When You're Dealing with a Fool. I know none of you have ever had to do that before. If you leave your house, you don't even have to leave your house. You can get on a phone call. Now, see, some of you laughed real heartily. You thought I meant the fool was in the house, and I'm not going to touch that. But you can answer the phone. You can deal with a telemarketer. You can, you can deal with a fool in any kind of circumstances. Today, we're going to talk about how you need to act when you deal with a fool. And God help us, don't let us be the fool. Like Mr. T used to say, I pity the fool. Some of you remember the A-Team. He was a big refrigerator-sized, muscled-out dude with a mohawk who had a lot of jewelry, and he always said, I pity the fool. Look at your name and say, I pity the fool. All right, I'm really dating myself. Those, we're talking the 70s here. Let's, let's get our text. Here we go. And there it is. Here we go. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance, with upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Let's pray together this morning. Gracious God, we cry out to you right now. Lord, in the midst of all the blessing that we enjoy, the world grieves at the nonsense that happened in Paris in the last couple of days. Lord, for an idiot or idiots to plan together, motivated by demonically inspired worldviews and ideologies that would take the lives of other people. God, we pray right now for the comforting presence of the Holy Spirit on Paris, on the people of that nation. Lord, <clears throat> this is a day and time when we don't know that it won't even hit our own city, our own town, or, or hit our own school with, with, with some social challenge, socially challenged person getting angry and then just taking it out on innocent people. We cry out to you right now, God, and I ask you that you take what the, what the devil meant for evil and you would turn it for good and that you would let Paris and France and Europe and the world begin to cry out for the hand of God to move and for revival to be poured out and for the Holy Spirit of God to touch that nation. We pray for the comforting presence of the everlasting arms to be wrapped around those people right now. Our hearts are broken. We grieve. Lord, we, we thank you that you've given us the promise in Psalm 91 that he that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my strength, my God in him I trust. Lord, that psalm talks about the terror that flies by day. Terror is all around us, Father. It, 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 it wreaks havoc in our own lives and terrifies us, Father, and causes us to worry and be afraid. And God, I thank you that you've not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. 
Help us today, Jesus. We, we put you first. We acknowledge you. We lift up the name of Jesus. We pray for peace in Jesus' name. We ask you, Lord, right now that as we acknowledge you, we need you more than we've ever needed you before. The world needs Jesus more than it's ever needed him before. God, meet us in these next few moments as we open this word. Teach us today, Holy Spirit. Only you can do that. I cannot do anything apart from you. God, be, be new, fresh eyes and ears in all of our lives to help us to discern the voice of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. You may be seated this morning in the presence of the Lord. One thing I want to underline in your thinking today, the one thing that I want you to understand in this message called When You're Dealing with a Fool is this one principle. No one ever outgrows the need to be teachable. Say that with me. No one outgrows the need to be teachable. When everybody around you is trying their best to help you and you refuse to listen, then you or I might be that fool. A fool is not a stupid person. A fool is not a moron or an imbecile or uh, a slow learner. A fool can be a brilliant man. It can be a very intelligent woman. The Bible defines a fool as this. A fool, the Bible says in Psalm 14 and 53, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So there are a lot of brilliant men and women today who look to an atheistic ideology that they attempt to explain life and meaning through that set of filters. And this morning I just want to say this to you. We are not just immediately dismissing someone who is in a place of questioning. We, we, we love to sit down and have conversation. You might not have arrived to a, a confidence yet that there is a God. And if you're in a place of that, that transitional stage of what we call an agnostic, we get the, the English word, or the Greek word is agnoeo. We, 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 we think of someone who just doesn't know. The, the English equivalent is ignorant. That does, that's not a bad word. Don't, 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 don't knee-jerk that word. That just means you just don't know. And if we're really truthful, there is a whole lot that we are ignorant about. But there's a difference in being ignorant of some things and just being an ignoramus. That's someone who just doesn't want to know. There's another Greek word. It's the Greek word idiotes. You see the word idiot in it. We don't want to be that. We don't want to reject the opportunity to be able to learn. And so to be able to learn means that I have to be teachable. And there are times when I don't feel like it. There are moments in my life, and I'm just confessing to you that my own personal uh, struggle at times when I just don't I, don't, I don't need somebody in my face telling me something else because of just the whole set of circumstances that life has handed me. Just the junk that I'm going through. Come on, anybody in the room, can you relate to, I don't need to tell you what mine are because everybody in the room has got a whole list of circumstances and things that we can all talk about that, that literally uh, can, can set us back. And the real difference is perspective. We've preached this. Perspective changes everything. My problem is not the problem, but what I think about the problem is the real problem. How I even view my enemy. How big is Satan? Uh, well, God's bigger, and God's already won. It's not like I heard when I was a little kid in the Pentecostal church, they used to say, oh, saints, you better pray because the demons and the angels are fighting, and, and we want God to win. And I, You know, it didn't take me but a few years of just a little bit of Bible reading to go, where did that idea come from? God's already won this thing. He's God. He's capital G, God on the throne. Amen. Stupid. 
just kind of nonsense, some of the stuff that we grow up with and becomes sort of part of our thinking and our, 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 our ideology, our, 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 our ideas that have to be renewed and we have to go to the Word for that to happen. We need to be teachable. Now, there's a backstory that I want to give you quickly this morning because I, 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 wanna, I really want to tell the story. Because there's a lot of scripture. There's, there's 45 verses in this chapter, and I can't take time to read all those verses to you. And so we have a story about a guy by the name of Nabal. Now, the, I hope none of your friends are named Nabal. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, it just amazes me sometimes the names that people hang on their kids. And, and I'm thinking, man, where did you get that? Nabal means worthless fool. Oh, How would you like that? Come on, Nene, come on over here. Or Nabby, Nab, Nabster. <laughs> Nabal means worthless. Man, what was his mama thinking? She must have had a hard pregnancy or something to name him fool when, as soon as he peered out. But he's married to this beautiful woman the Bible describes as a gracious, elegant woman of God. And her name is Abigail. This is where my wife got the name for our daughter. Because of the love story that's going to emerge. And you don't get it on the front end because she's married to a worthless fool. And Nadab is not by any means stupid. He is a very astute, wise, hardened businessman. The Bible describes him, and you can read in the first 12 verses. I'm going to give you a summary of that and just tell you the story. But in the first 12 verses of, of 1 Samuel 25, he's a man who lives in Maon, but he has a business in Carmel. Now let me interpret those tongues for you. He's spreading out. He's a rancher. He's got, he's got all kinds of livestock. Scripture says he has 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. Now, this is a rich man for the time in which he lives. And it was the time of sheep shearing. Is the Lord talking? Somebody's got a radio walkie-talkie on. Please turn that down. Uh, the, the, the sheep shearers are gathering because it's the season to be able to sell all of the, the wool that the sheep are growing on their backs. And David has been very faithful. He's a godly Israelite. He keeps the commandments of God. He lives according to the great one that is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and your neighbor as yourself. And he is very quick to honor. He's had a great history. He has just demonstrated to his men in the back of the cave of En Gedi when he didn't kill Saul, when they all thought he should have done it. Thank God the voice within him was greater than the voices around him. And so he stood the test. He, he, he demonstrated what it means, what it meant to be a real leader under pressure. And so he's, he's coming out of that victory, and we don't really know the exact amount of time, but his, his, his counselor, his dear friend Samuel, has died. And so he's gone through that grief. And, and, and if you can imagine what it's like to be a fugitive for several years, to be running out of caves and into the forest and into the wilderness. And in Gedi, thank God for in Gedi because you've got the Dead Sea on one side and the wilderness of Judea on the other. And I showed you that it's a type of the Holy Spirit. In Gedi means the leaping fountain or the fountain of the goat, the fountain of the kid. And, and literally it says the Holy Spirit is a leaping fountain in the middle of all of the death and desolation in your life. When you don't feel like you can find a safe place, if you can just get quiet and just connect with the Lord and just pray and begin to give God praise, the Holy Spirit will be life to you. It will encourage you. It will be a leaping fountain up in the inside of you in the middle of all the death and the desolation that's happening in your, your circumstances around your life. Amen. So David found that. He was grateful for that. And it was a proving time. He, 
he, he, he, he, he was careful to not bring harm to the Lord's anointed. Three times he says, I will not put my hand out against the Lord's anointed. And he's in a different season. He's had a great, great, wonderful time. And yet he's walked through a season of discouragement. Samuel has died and he's in, a, he's in the wilderness of Paran now. And it's, there are meager supplies. These guys are living off the land. They're hunting and gathering and there are no fish because the Dead Sea doesn't grow any. And they're running around as fugitives all over the place looking to try to, to find something to eat because their, their band of 400 motley crew have become mighty men and it's 600 strong now. So they've got 600 men that every time they go on the move, they've got to make some plans about some chow. They're going to have to kill a whole lot of something for the guys to be able to stay strong and be able to eat. And they have done the right thing over and over and over as they've been out in the wilderness and between the caves because Nabal is a well-known sort of a corporate figure in this region of Israel. He is a rancher who owns a lot of livestock and he's a rich man. And David has made sure that his shepherds and his sheep have always been protected. He always did right by them. When thieves attempted to break through and steal, David and his mighty men, literally one young man testifies who is part of Nabal's entourage and describes David's mighty men literally as being a wall around them to protect them from all of the elements and from the attempts of, of thieves to break through and steal and take the livestock or to kill them. David's men had been faithful. And there was in the culture the expectation of that when you do this for someone, when it comes the time to shear the sheep, that these men who have been good to the shepherds and the sheep of the owner, that when the owner shears the sheep, it's just a cultural expectation. It's not written anywhere. It's not in law. It's not codified anywhere. But it was just sort of the expectation of the culture that you would invite all those men in. You would give them a great big meal, throw a party, have a feast, feed them real good, thank them. Thank them for blessing you. Thank them for being out there when your shepherds might not have been able to have held back uh, an attempt or a, a number of thieves who would have come in and killed the shepherds and taken the whole host of sheep. And so David just basically out of expectation thought Nabal would follow through. It's like very much uh, waitresses and waiters and restaurants in America. They, they, they are paid this ridiculously low hourly wage, rage, rage, I can't get the word out. They're not paid minimum wage of $7.50. Many restaurants will pay these waiters and waitresses $2 or $3 an hour, and then they live on tips. And so they're expecting when we sit down with them to not just write, hey, here's a tip for you, smile when you bring my coffee. They're expecting you to put some cash down because it's the cultural expectation. I know there's been some things on the news lately about that changing, but one way or the other, they're going to get your money because if they don't have you tip, they're going to jack the prices way up. Don't shout me down. And so when someone serves well, I just think it's a courtesy. In America, we're expected 15, 20, 25%, whatever, depending on how well they do for you. They keep uh, iced tea in your glass. They keep your coffee hot. You know, they, they, they bring you something that might not have actually gone with the, the meal that you ordered, but you'd like something extra on the side, and they bring it to you and don't charge you for it. And, and so a good waitress, a good waiter is expecting, it's a cultural expectation that you would tip him or her and tip them appropriately. And we're not talking about leaving a penny heads up sitting there, but something that is significant. Somebody say amen. amen. I believe Christians ought, should not be stingy, amen. that we ought to be generous. 
and, and a tip doesn't mean leaving them a track and no money. Now, that's really going to get the gospel over, isn't it? Okay, so the, the, you see the point here. This is what David's moving from. Now, um, David gets upset because he's lost his counselor. He's in a wilderness with 600 men looking to him, and they can't find enough food to eat. And they've been good to Nabal, the worthless dude who's a rich guy, who's married to this gorgeous woman, sweet lady named Abigail. And Nabal basically responds when David sends 10 of his young men to Nabal and says, I hear that you're shearing the sheep and, and I just want you to know that we've always been here for you. We've taken care of your shepherds and protected them. We've never one time taken anything that was ours. Ask your own men. David put these words in the mouth of 10 young men sent as representatives. They go before Nabal and Nabal stops. He pauses and he waits and he looks at the young men and he says, who is David? Who, who is this son of Jesse? These are days when all kinds of men are breaking away from their master's houses and doing things they ought not to do. And the fool starts talking. His, his mouth is in gear before his mind is engaged. And he literally insults and humiliates the ten young men. And he sends them away with nothing and sends them back to David. And David hears the report and David immediately says, Every man, strap on your sword. Now, how many of you know David is knee-jerking? He's just let a king go who was trying to kill him, but he's about to cut the head off a man who won't give him a meal. Do, do you see the almost schizophrenic contrast between these two? David, you did so well! Every man strapped on his sword, and the scripture says it three times, and every man strapped on his sword, and then David strapped on his sword. Well, guess what? They are locked and loaded. They're hungry for bears. As a matter of fact, there's some commercials that have been on TV that I think would probably describe how, how David was. He wasn't just hungry. He was hangry. <laughs> Come on. Any, any of you men in the room ever been hangry before? And, and when you were moving out of that kind of an attitude, you said things that you shouldn't have said. Now, you might not have killed anybody, but you know you wanted to. You thought about it. Now, it's, Come on, is any honest man in the room? Now, come on, wives will tell the truth. You know there have been times he shot his mouth off and you've had to go, what in the world? What, 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 what is up with you? You must have got up on the wrong side of the bed. What's up with you? And you know that when you get hangry and you're already hurt and frustrated and you're looking at things through a bad perspective and you, you're not seeing things right, that you can get everything out of kilter. And, and, and this brings me to my next point. The second point is this. Past victory doesn't guarantee present battles. And about the minute that I start to think, man, I really handled that well. Lord God, did you see how I did that? Thank you, Jesus. I give you praise because I know that I couldn't do it without you. But look how good I did that. My, my, my. And I start patting myself on the back and I go into something that is one-tenth the issue. And if I'm carrying frustration and anger, I can act just where I'm almost getting my mouth in motion before my mind is engaged and I open up and I insert size 15 Anybody ever done that in the room? Oh my goodness, help me Lord. How many times have I done it? I, I've, I've done it with my children. I've done it with my wife. I've done it with this church. I've done it with my staff. And I would just have to say, I'm sorry, this is where I am. Pray for me, please. And in and, 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 and the ways that so many times David is the picture of Jesus, this is one where he is not, man. He is so human. 
He is so not acting like Jesus in this moment because he had that redemptive moment where he gives us this beautiful picture of having been accused and not taking his own life into his hands and killing somebody else then he would have been justified in doing so. But now in this moment, because a dude won't feed his men, he gets angry and he's ready to not let leave one male of the house left standing. As a matter of fact, he says those words. If you read the text, read this maybe when you get home or maybe in your devotional time this week. David is so upset. He says, I'm going to tell you right now, God do so to the enemies of David. He says, if we don't make sure that there's not one male left standing of Nabal's house. They were going to go in, strap on your sword, dude. They're going to kill everybody. I've said this before. It bears repeating right now. It's a lot easier to act like a Christian than it is to react like one. Did you hear what I just said? I, I can act like it when everything's going right or maybe even I can fake it when it's not going right. But when something catches me off guard and I'm hangry, I'm frustrated, I'm hurt, I'm discouraged, I'm grieving... My, my counselor has died. There's no provision. I'm worried. I'm dismayed. Every direction I'm turning at, somebody's punching and poking and prodding and criticizing and all of this kind of stuff. The moment that I had in great victory in the past does not guarantee my present battle. I need to seek the Lord right now, one day at a time, presently. Come on, somebody. Put your hands together and give the Lord praise. This is the issue. Point number three. Abigail runs. Because a young man heads out and lets Abigail know what's going on. Somebody, thank the Lord, is talking in this chapter. And they run and they tell Abigail about what Nabal did. And they are not nice when they talk about their own master. He literally says, let me tell you, let me give the testimony. David was a wall around us in the wilderness as the shepherds and the sheep and they protected us and they never took anything that wasn't theirs. And he said, this is what your husband Nabal, the worthless fellow, the fool, this is what he did. This is what he sent to David. And David responded and said, every man strap on a sword. And he says, I've come to bring you some news right now because there is bad. There is, there is danger headed for your husband, for our master, for this house, and for every man in this house because he has angered David. And he said, let me tell you something. Your worthless husband, my worthless boss, that's what he says in the text, he says is unapproachable. Nobody can even talk to him. Now, I want you to hear something this morning. I don't care who you are or who I am or how many great victories you have had. When everybody around you is trying to help you and you refuse to hear it, you or I might be the fool. Nobody ever grows beyond being teachable. Look at your neighbor and say, be teachable. I need to be teachable. I need to respond. I will never have a time where I'm not still learning something from God. Something I literally believe that in the eons of time, throughout, throughout uh, all of the, the ages, that we are going to be learning from the majesty and the knowledge and the wisdom and the greatness. We're going to stand in awe and worship and sing, and we're going we're, we're to be able to we're going to be able to view history from a different vantage point. We're going to look back and see what we were going through and the frustration we had because we could only see it from a limited perspective. But now it's like like the person who who weaves the tapestry, and, and so many times we're seeing the mess on the backside, and you don't see the beautiful picture that God's actually weaving because you're part of the scene. 
And you, you, I believe that we won't even know it until we get to eternity and we'll stand in awe of God's goodness and His glory and His knowledge and His wisdom and we'll continually be learning because no matter how great things are with you, you will always be finite and He is always infinite. He knows all things. We know a little bitty tiny, just a piece of dust is our personal knowledge of the things that are happening in the universe. Even in our own lives, we don't have the picture that God has of being able to see how He works all things together for our good behind the scenes. Sometimes when we think we can't see where it is, it's because He's teaching us a lesson. We're learning something from it. Maybe an adjustment, a correction, an enlargement so that you can see things bigger than you ever have before. I love that. Abigail hears the story and she responds immediately. And you would think she had run a catering business because she immediately gets 200 loaves and five prepared sheep and, and two, um, two, two skins of wine and, and uh, uh, 200 raisin cakes and all this stuff going on and on and on. And literally the Bible says, and she loaded it on the back of donkeys, plural. So she's got a caravan. And she's headed out to David because she has to do make sure that whatever she does, she averts David's wrath because David is about to make a major mistake because he's not acting like Jesus. He's hangry. He saved a crazy king that he could have been justified in killing, but he's about to kill a man who just wouldn't feed his men. Now, how crazy is that? We've all been in those places where we get so frustrated and hurt and you just... Mm. Man, I'm ready to lay hands on somebody suddenly in the name of Jesus. <laughs> Don't you even look at me in that religious tone. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And God has to remind me, you don't know what your spirit is, is of. You, you, you better stop and pray. You better get a hold of this thing right here. <laughs> you know, we might not strap on a sword, but we'll jump on Facebook and just... <laughs> just throw it out there. Just stir the pot. Here we go. Well, they just need to know what I'm going through. They just don't know how bad it is. And just the mess. I'm, I want to go, God, where, where are these Nabals? Where are these fools? And why are they putting this stuff up out there? Come on, is anybody in the house hearing me this morning? The craziness that people put out there. Telling everybody about your business. Abigail runs with all of this stuff, multiple donkeys laden down with Abigail's catered, sheep-prepared bread, wine, raisin cakes, all of this stuff on and on, everything they could imagine. It was a spread that would more than feed these 600 men. And she meets David on the way. They're coming down out of the hill country, and they're headed to Nabal's house. And Abigail gets down off of her donkey, and she falls down prostrate before him. And the Bible says she worships before him. And she says, oh, my Lord, please let me stop you today because you're about to do something. You don't want to do this, sir, because the Lord is going to give you a sure house. Go ahead and put that verse up for me. I want you to see it right here. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord. Notice, capital L is God. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord. That's David. Everybody say David. David. The Lord will make my Lord a sure house because my Lord David is fighting the battles of the Lord God and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. Read on. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, he goes on to say that she goes on to say, The life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living, and the care of the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies shall be slung out 
He will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. He says, if you'll just let God take care of this. She said, if you'll let God take care of this, he will handle it. Don't do it, David. God wants to give you a sure house because if you do this, next verse. He says, when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel. He says, my Lord, read it out loud with me, come on. My Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience. Look at it. For having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. Abigail is on her knees, on her face going, David, you can't do this. God's called you to something higher than this. Listen to me. And the crazy thing is David had the presence of mind to realize this in the cave with Saul. But he'd lost the sense of reality when it came to the fool. Come on, there's one at work. Come on, there's one in your neighborhood. There's one at your school. There's one down the street. There's maybe one sitting on the pew with you this morning. I don't know. I'm telling you, they're all around. He says, and when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Abigail is basically saying, if you'll let God take care of this, he will, and I ask you that when the day comes and you know that it's done, remember me. Abigail's name means source of joy, or my father is joy. And so she takes a plea and she takes provision. And I love the response of David. My next point this morning is this. This became David's teachable moment. This is what's so wonderful. Even when David fails, he still has the ability to respond. And thank God before he actually carried out his plan, somebody stepped in and got in his face and said, wait, you don't want to do this. Let me just tell you, everybody in here, I don't care what a crackerjack business person you are, I don't care what kind of spiritual leader you are, how many folks you've done this or that or what the bottom line is or your stock portfolio or, or, or all of the successes that you can pile up and claim to yourself, everybody needs at least one person that can get in your face and tell you the truth and stop you in your tracks and say wait let's pray I beg you don't handle it this way and the beauty of this is that David responded he had a teachable moment I mean he's a warrior bless God anointed to be the king knows he's got the throne his crazy boss said the last week in the cave I know the Lord's going to establish Israel in your hand I know you're going to be the next king he's gotten the word of him everybody knows it you know, you can start to sort of relax a little bit in a confidence that fools you into thinking that you're doing this yourself in your own ability. David is teachable, and this is his response. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me. Say the words, kept me. You have kept me this day from blood guilt. Now, that's a word, blood guilt. You've kept the blood off of my hands and the guilt of killing a worthless fool of a man, but certainly wouldn't have been justified in doing it. And from working salvation with my own hand. That's a nice way to say from taking vengeance and avenging yourself. The whole lesson last week was let God handle it. Vengeance is the Lord's. You've stopped me. You've kept me from trying to work out deliverance in my own thinking, with my own ingenuity, with my own plan, with my own sword. This is the word of the Lord that came to pass. Next point this morning. Let's get it. There we go. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. No matter how strong the leader, 
We all need a team that can say, hang on a second. No matter how great you are as a husband, you need a wife that you need to pay attention to. No matter how great a wife, you need a husband that you can listen to and be adjusted, be corrected in. Everybody. Everybody say, everybody. Nobody ever grows beyond the need to be teachable. It breaks my heart when I see young leaders who have so much potential and they get a foolish idea in their head that they have a corner on truth and nobody else sees it. And let me just let you in on a little secret here. Anytime God reveals something to one, He's always going to reveal it to somebody else because it's always going to come out of the mouth of two witnesses. Let every word be established. And if everybody around you is telling you, hang on, you need to listen. If you think you're the only one and, and nobody else bears witness to what you're saying, you need to back up and really test the Spirit and see if you're not being deceived. Don't shout me down this morning. I'm preaching real good. I've seen more guys with great potential let this thing come to them and they've lost that teachable thing and God moves them to the side. They leave the game and head to the showers. No longer operating in the gifting that they could have grown. It's, it's a heartbreaking situation to see it. David responds. He says, I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition. Last point this morning. Abigail's news and Nabal's response. Abigail goes home. She sees that Nabal has thrown the great big party that David had expected him to throw. They've sheared 3,000 sheep, and they're going to rake in a lot of money. It's cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching day, and so he's throwing a feast, and Nabal's drunk. Nabal is so drunk that Abigail, the Scripture says, if we read, and I think I will read this to close, because I haven't worn you out with a lot of reading from, from the 45 verses this morning. Let me grab this last little section. Verse 36, Abigail came to Nabal and behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things and his heart died within him and he became as a stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. I believe that Nabal had a stroke. I believe he was a stingy, Scrooge-like miser of a man who basically flipped off God and thought he was going to live however he wanted to live and he was going to build his barns and he was going to gather his riches. Wasn't going to listen to anybody. And Abigail acted in order not necessarily against him. She really saved his life. She acted for him and went and held back the wrath. Her worship averted the wrath of David. She jumped off the donkey and bowed down and begged David, please take this provision and this is my plea. Please forgive my husband. He, the, she literally describes him himself. She says his name is Nabal and he is as his name says. Nabal is his name and folly is his game. Literally, that's, that's, that's just about the gist of what she said. She said, please forgive the trespass. And David listened and he obeyed and he granted her petition. And when she went home and told her husband the truth, I want you to get this because this is the effect of the truth on the old man. 
Are you hearing me? When the old man in you, Nabal, the fool, your old sin nature, the Adamic nature, hears the truth of the gospel, he is paralyzed and his heart dies. And the Lord strikes him. I want you to let that sink in. Nabal's a picture of the old man because Abigail, who is a beautiful, gracious, elegant woman, and her name means source of joy, has felt the limitation, the verbal abuse, the berating, all of the stuff that the old man dishes out to you and your soul all the days of your life. Abigail literally is a picture of your human soul. I don't know if any of you have ever had any foreign language classes, but when, when you take Spanish or you take French or usually any of the romantic languages, they all have both feminine and masculine tenses for nouns. La salle de classe, la corbella. In Spanish, it would be la los, and some of them are masculine, some of them are feminine. We don't do that in English. It just does not happen. We don't, we don't think about this speaker being feminine and this keyboard being masculine and this chair and this table. La, la sola table. La. And it's a female. It's feminine. When you look at the original language, both Hebrew and Greek do this. They have feminine and masculine tenses. And the Bible, the, the Hebrew word for soul is nephesh, suke. And, and, and they're both feminine in their understanding. And so Abigail is a picture of the human soul. And if you think I'm off my rocker and giving you this, Josh, I want you to put up David's own words in Psalm 34. Put that up for me right here. Psalm 34. Now I want you to see this. This is a psalm of David. So David is saying these words. This is when he changed his behavior before Abimelech who drove him away and he departed. And this is where it starts right here. All of that is what's called the superscription. It's up above the psalm. It describes who wrote it and the circumstances he was in. I will bless is where the psalm starts. That's verse 1. Read it out loud with me. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make... Now a man's singing this. David's writing it. This is the authorized version. This is King James. Why would a man say, my soul shall make her? You, I, I doubt if I ask you if anybody ever caught that, there wouldn't be one hand go up in the room. Because we just read over Scripture, and it's so full. My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. So the soul of man is, is, is viewed in a feminine sense. But the spirit of man is viewed in as a masculine sense. Peter writes in his epistle and he talks about the hidden man of the heart. Didn't say the hidden woman, but it's the hidden man. And so the spirit is masculine, the soul is feminine. And so literally we see, this is what I want you to grasp this morning as I close this. Because it's not just a beautiful story about how you need to listen and deal with fools. But it's also an amazing picture because when Nabal dies, David sins for Abigail. Listen to this. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail and to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to take you 
to take him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. Verse 42, and I'm finished. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. Now what I want to tell you this morning is Nabal is Adam, and Adam is the old man and he's dead because the gospel paralyzed him and took his life. Some of you want to shout, but you don't quite understand it yet. What I want to tell you now is that your husband is dead and you're not bound to him any longer, honey. And you've got a new husband now, Heavenly David. His name is Jesus, who died to make you his own. And guess what? You need to quit living out of the memories of the old man and you need to get his clothes out of the closet of your memory, out of your mind. You need to get rid of all that stuff, take it, take it, give it to goodwill, throw it away, whatever you got to do. Put the pictures away because every time you look at the face of your old sin nature, your old man, Adam, the Adamic nature, Nabal, the fool that says there is no God, that rises up and says, I will do as I please. That's what Adam did in the garden. Said, no, 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 we'll make up our own minds. We'll make our own laws. We'll, we'll do as we please. We'll, we'll take the fruit. Nabal's a picture of the old man. And you know what? We, we can even celebrate him and we'll, 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 we'll bury him. We'll bury him in the waters of baptism. And even after that, we go ahead and we just keep letting his clothes hang in the closets of our lives, in our memories. Are you hearing what I'm saying to you this morning? And we keep living out of all of the stuff that happened to us and where he took us and how he abused us and the habits that he dragged us down into, the old sin nature of our past. And I want to tell you, even as Aaron sang this morning, and I bring this message to a close, that beautiful line that says, He, the Lord, will have his bride and she will be free from her guilt and all of her shame will be removed and she will be called by her true name. You know what God looks at when he sees you? He says, Abigail, source of joy. I see joy when I see the bride of Christ. That's the, that's the true name that God has given you, saints. Don't let somebody keep beating you down, telling you how no good, low down, just filthy, awful you are. That's who you used to be. You're a new creation in Christ now. Come on, somebody. The old is gone. The new is come. And your old man's dead. That means you're not bound to him anymore. You don't have to live like you used to live. You have a new husband now and his name is Jesus. And he set his love on you and he's forgiven you. And I want to say something to somebody in this room this morning. I have no idea who I'm talking to. But I'm telling you right now, you have something in your past that keeps haunting you. And you keep bringing it up. And God says, I've covered it with the blood and I don't even know what you're talking about. I've forgotten it. Why do you keep remembering it? And the word of the Lord to somebody in this room who's a believer, you're an Abigail. Abigail might be a sister. Abigail might be a brother because we're all the bride of Christ together. And the crazy beauty of this thing is, is that this great macrocosm, this big picture of Jesus and his church operates between husband and wife. It operates in your own life between a feminine soul and a masculine spirit. And when those two come together, they begin to reproduce fruit and they start to produce the life of Christ because guess what? You've got a new husband living in your heart now. His name is Jesus. Y'all not getting excited enough this morning about this. My last point, put it up. I want you to say it out loud when you come on. The old man is dead. You have a new husband. His name is Jesus. Bow your hearts with me, please, this morning.